I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox, the podcast that seeks out answers to questions large and small. My name is George Miller, and my guest in this program from the archive is Robert Douglas Fairhurst who's fellow and tutor at Magdalen College, Oxford. I met Robert to talk to him about his book, Becoming Dickens, a biography of the author which takes a radical approach. It follows its subject's life only as far as the late 1830s, when Dickens was in his late 20s and sloughing off his identity as Boz, the sketchwriter, to become Charles Dickens, the novelist. Robert's approach allows us to grasp Dickens' early life as full of choices, false starts, crises, roads not taken, but also marked by Dickens' incredible energy, his drive to succeed and make a name for himself. I began my conversation with Robert by remarking that the term Dickensian had become virtually synonymous with Victorian. One of the strange things is that Dickens started off his career on the margins of society in terms of income and in terms of profession as a journalist. It was only as he became a novelist that he moved to the centre, which is one of the reasons why we now think of Victorian Dickensian as, as you say, more or less synonymous terms. But although he is now thought of as being absolutely at the heart of things and often at the heart of the cultural establishment, he remained an eccentric figure on the edges of things in terms of sensibility, in terms of attitude, in terms of just of his his character, his personality. He was a very, very strange man. And I think that we forget that. And really, I suppose the, the aim of this project then is to give him back some of that strangeness. That's right. It's, it's to make us realise we don't know him nearly as well as we think we do. And in fact, one of the things that he does in his novels is to look at himself with quizzical, sceptical, strange eyes, not least when he puts versions of himself into his own fiction, sometimes calling those characters Charles or Charlie, sometimes calling them Dick, sometimes displacing them into women or into little girls. But either way, trying to think of himself as if he was someone else. And that's something he said towards the end of his life. He says that he's accustomed sometimes to look at himself with strange eyes. That's what he did in his fiction, and I hope it's what we do when we read the biography I've written. He also talks about imagining himself as having easily become a little robber or a little vagabond. So he's, he's also imagining these sort of bifurcations in the path where his life could have gone in, in different directions. That's absolutely right. One of the things that biography often does 
is it assumes that lives fall into a nice neat pattern of a beginning and a middle and an end, whereas real life is more often concerned with choices which have to abandon alternatives en route and loose ends, that what biographers usually do is ignore all that. They join up the dots in somebody's life. They join the dots of those events which come to signify important, significant moments. And they create a nice, neat pattern out of those dots, like a dot-to-dot picture. The problem is that that entirely ignores what it's like to live through ordinary life, which is full of confusion and uh, often chaos. And Dickens had more confusion, more chaos in his life than most people. He also lived more lives than most people, side by side. He was a, a social campaigner. He was a novelist, of course. He was an actor. He was a playwright. He was an amateur conjurer. He set up a home for fallen women, along with Angela Burdett Coutts, uh, the, the banking heiress. He did a number of things side by side. And what biography can't do, of course, is to show adequately how his life tried to reconcile all those different urges and all those different forces into the day-to-day business of living. And what I've tried to do in this biography is to restore that sense of the, the day-to-day oddness and confusion of, of his life. So you you sort of wanted to escape the conventional teleology of it, but at the same time you want to make sense. You still you're still trying to make sense of the life as as it's lived. So how did you actually approach that as a as a task? Because it's, it's an unconventional kind of approach, isn't it? It's tricky because what I had to do was to try and blind myself to my knowledge of what happens. Uh, so I had to try and forget everything which I already knew about the later life. I had to try and forget about the choices he made and the the outcomes, the consequences of those choices, to try and put myself in his shoes. And some of the things I did, of course, most biographers would do. I went to the places uh, where he went. I tried to tread in his footsteps. I tried to imagine myself back into that strange ferment of the 1830s. And other things I did included reading the novels and trying to imagine that I didn't know what the endings were, to read them serially as they were written, chunk by chunk, week by week, or month by month, and then to pause at the end of every chunk before resuming, to allow that sense of, of, of play, of unexpectedness, of surprise to linger on the page, in the way, of course, it had to for him when he was writing them. Yes, because although, in a sense, he's a very, very ordered man, he was also making it up as he went along to some extent, wasn't he? he it, sometimes you, you talk about sometimes the, the character of the language kind of pulling the, the, um, the book along rather than being plot-driven in a conventional way. That's true of the novels. It's also true of his life, I think, that uh, often, again, he was, he was an improviser. He enjoyed improvising. Uh, his life was a whole series of improvisations. The problem was that often he talked himself while improvising into a series of uh, decisions, and then he had to live with the consequences. The most important of those, I suppose, was his marriage. He felt the need to get married. In some ways, it was a year-long whim to court Catherine Hogarth, the daughter of one of his work colleagues, and then to marry her. But then he was stuck at home with someone with whom he was entirely incompatible, and the only way he could get rid of some of the feelings of of disappointment, of rejection, 
of, of despondency was by filtering them through his his novels, which is why so often you get disappointed, angry married men, and indeed disappointed, angry married women in his fiction. Robert, take us back then to 1812 and say a little bit about Dickens' childhood, because that has been the subject of a great deal of mythologization and also quite a degree of self-mythologization. Tell us what you kind of get at if you scrape some of that away. I think scraping it away is made difficult, as you say, by the fact that what we know about his childhood is largely directed through the autobiographical fragment which he wrote and gave to his friend John Forster, which was then inserted into the beginning of Forster's life, the first, I suppose, authorised, or the only authorised biography of Dickens. But even if you read that closely, what you get, I think, is a sense of how ordinary his life could have been and how extraordinary it became because of one twist of fate. And the twist of fate was his father's imprisonment for debt. And as a lot of people know, because of that, Dickens had to go and work in a blacking factory uh, by the Thames, a blacking factory meaning a shoe polish factory, where his job was to uh, paste labels onto uh, little pots uh, of shoe polish again and again and again. And it was routine drudgery of a kind that was entirely familiar to an awful lot of little boys. The key difference for Dickens is that he had imagined an entirely different life story for himself. And suddenly he found himself occupying shoes that felt alien, as if he'd been jettisoned from the life which he thought he was destined to lead and pushed into someone else's life. Now, his father was released from prison after less than a year, but one might argue that Dickens never really left the blacking factory. In fact, he never really felt released from it. It was as if it was like a personal prison, a series of little prison bars he carried around with him for the rest of his life. And the analogy one might think of is Marley in A Christmas Carol, who has those chains that clank around with him as a ghost. And in some ways, Dickens had an imaginative version of those sorts of chains that he carried around with him, which was his past, but also, in some ways, it was the future which he had narrowly escaped by managing to get out of the backing factory in time. I was struck by the fact that the word precarious recurs throughout the book, really, and that seemed to be quite a good way of summing up his attitude to his status. Yes, and the word precarious, of course, is very close to the word precious, uh, and that link between the precious and the precarious is a sort of pivot that Dickens teetered on for most of his life. Things were important to him because he recognised just how vulnerable they were to being otherwise. In fact, there's a line in Dombey and Son in which he refers to Mr Dombey brooding over what might have been and what was not. And in some ways, that's another self-projection of Dickens, his obsession with that, that vulnerability, not just of lives to going in different directions, to, to reaching forks in the path, but also a brooding over the ghosts of lives unled and the outcome of the decisions that you didn't make. These kind of rival selves or rival stories that buzzed around in his head until he wrote them down. And one of the reasons why he was so anxious, so terrified of killing off any of his characters. Paul Dombey, for instance, or uh, Little Nell, most notoriously, uh, he told Forster about pacing the streets 
for hours after he'd killed little Nell off on the page is that in some ways they were like little suicides. This was him imagining killing himself off and yet surviving with the guilt, the guilt of the survivor. I thought it was fascinating and perhaps not coincidental that in writing about Dickens becoming Dickens, you're also writing about the novel becoming the novel and also a society becoming a society. So there's a sense in which everything is in a process of ferment, of developing, of, of turning into it. And again, a salutary reminder that the way we think about things was, was not set. And in Dickens' time, it, was, it wasn't, it wasn't um, as, as we tend to think of it. Surprisingly little has been written about the 1830s. And I say surprisingly because that is really the birth of modernity. And I know historians often like to pinpoint modernity to different points in, in history. But the 1830s has a very, very good claim. It was a time of extraordinary social change. It was the moment the Reform Bill, for the first time, really enfranchised a large group of uh, what was a growing middle class. It was a time of legislation on everything from poverty to slavery. Uh, And of course, it was when Victoria came to the throne at almost exactly the same time that Dickens was first reaching prominence through, through the Pickwick Papers. So if you put all those aspects together, what you get is the 1830s is a time of fresh starts. It was a a dawn of what we now think of the the Victorian age, but it wouldn't have looked like that to the people at the time at all. They were making it up as they went along. They had a sense of being on the cusp of something new and exciting. And Dickens moves to the heart of that process at exactly the moment that it's getting going. And he moves to the heart of it with Pickwick Papers, which is, in many ways, the first modern novel. I find it fascinating, before he even gets to Pickwick Papers, to see all the stages that he goes through as a writer, from being a legal clerk, where he's simply a copyist, to being a parliamentary reporter, and then to being a a journalist out and and about, and a a recorder of London life, to see all those various stages that he's sort of he's trying out maybe through economic necessity but just you know again he doesn't arrive fully formed he he's got to go through lots of iterations before he becomes the dickens we know your word stages is a very good one because of course there are theatrical stages as well as stages of of a career and dickens often confused the two I and mean, interestingly he confused the two so a number of these these versions of himself that he had to work through as uh, the solicitor's clerk, as the shorthand reporter, as the writer of comic sketches, then building into someone who could sustain fiction over longer periods into what we now think of as a novel. All of those stages in some ways were a series of improvised turns. This is Dickens, the the obsessive theatre-goer, the person who had ambitions to being an actor until illness stopped him from taking that up. He had ambitions to write plays uh, until his success as a novelist meant that it wasn't necessary anymore. And you can think of his appearance at the time, flashy waistcoats, loud trousers, <laughs> um, everything from his hair down to his, you know, his pocket handkerchief. This was him putting on the costume of a successful young man about town and then trying to live up to the image that he'd created for himself. So Stages is absolutely right, because in many ways he was acting the role in order to work out what it was. How pivotal in that process was the pseudonym Boz? That seemed to me the sort of the point on which it, it all turned, really, and he, the way he became a, a writer. 
It's interesting in lots of ways. One is that he took it from the Vicar of Wakefield, uh, which includes a character whose father is imprisoned for debt. So there are clearly personal associations there, which, which again, go back to that sense of carrying around his past with him is this, this great burden, but also wanting to release himself from it, to liberate himself through, through his writing. But it's also important, I think, simply because it was a nickname, it was a way in which he could be himself while pretending to be somebody else. And he often wrote under pseudonyms in the first few years of his career. In fact, it's not until much later, when everybody knows who Charles Dickens is, that he starts signing himself and his fiction as Charles Dickens. It's not really until Oliver Twists, where he changes the title page of the novel when it's first published in three volumes from Boz to Charles Dickens. That's the moment where he really announces himself to the world as a novelist. And until then, you can think of him as trying out various writerly roles in the way that he was trying on different kinds of costumes. But it was only once he felt he had written a proper novel in three volumes that he could put his own name to it. I was astonished he didn't give up thoughts of a legal career until really, was it the 18, mid-1850s? He was still nursing this idea that, of that as something to, to fall back on, as it were. I th- yes, and even if he wasn't going to go into the career of the law, I think he liked the camaraderie, or he liked the idea of being part of something larger than himself. It's one of the many paradoxes of Dickens that he directed his bile, his fury, against the things that he felt most attracted to and indeed most involved with. And the law is one of the most obvious examples of that. As you say, it wasn't until very late in his career that he finally gave up membership of an Inns of Court. And that is really because it gave him a sense of belonging, of tradition, of respectability which was driving him to recreate himself as a novelist. But there was always the fear, I suppose, that fiction writing was not serious enough, not weighty enough to give him the position in society that he aspired to. We talked about that the, the little bit about the novel still being in a sort of state of becoming. And it was really brought home to me by your book how precarious the lot of the man of letters was in, in the 1830s. And at one point you quote... Uh, a contemporary writer listing all the, the current literary luminaries, and they're all forgotten, you know, with a couple of exceptions, completely forgotten. And there are spectacles of writers who really sink, you know, they, they go, they succumb to um, alcohol or whatever, or just go under. And one of the most poignant things, I suppose, is going, going a little bit earlier, I thought in the book was the image of Sir Walter Scott, heavily indebted at the end of his life, trying to write, scarcely able to hold the pen, the tears running down his face. That really brought home to me the fact that, that being a man of letters in the 1830s wasn't, wasn't by any means a career path that you could take for granted. You know, you could be up one year and you could be down. Of course, there's a famous quote, isn't there, about rising like a rocket and falling like a stick, which was said of Dickens. That's right. The, the two examples that, that spring to mind, one you've mentioned, uh, Walter Scott, who simply overspent his uh, ability to, to make money. He couldn't make enough to keep up with the expenses of a, of a huge house. The other obvious example would be Ainsworth, who for many years was thought to be Dickens's superior. He outsold Dickens. And yet, 
for the last 30 years of his life was a neglected nobody who had to keep on writing pot boilers simply in order to put enough food on the table. And although there is that famous early review of Dickens which says he has risen like a rocket and he will fall like the stick, in many ways Dickens carried on rising like a, a kind of spacecraft now which comes in different stages. And it was the other writers who fell away around him. But because he attracted so much fame and fortune and uh, celebrity, in some ways he blotted out the careers of the people around him. It makes you realise that although we tend to romanticise the Victorian novel, it was a fiercely cutthroat economy in which if one person succeeded, somebody else was almost bound to fail that you really were taking the food out of someone else's mouth if your own novel succeeded. Dickens was absolutely unapologetic about that. He realised that it was a business that he was in. He was a businessman. The reason that he fought so hard with and against his publishers, he drove a very, very hard bargain because he refused to allow other gentlemen of letters to take what he thought of as rightfully his own. And that led to him taking on a huge amount of work and contracting with various publishers simultaneously, didn't it? For fear of saying no and someone else getting in there, I guess. And it's one of the many oddities, again, of his, of his life that we think of him as being a novelist, primarily, maybe with a few other projects uh, which he did on the side. In fact, the years that produced his his fame, his greatest fame, when he was writing Pickwick Papers. He was writing lots of things on the side and did not really consider himself a novelist. He saw himself as a kind of jobbing writer who would turn his hand to anything. So within one month in January 1838, he was editing the memoirs of the great clown Grimaldi. He was writing a little book of sketches, satirical sketches uh, of young gentlemen for his publisher. He was writing Oliver Twist. He was still fiddling around with uh, Pickwick papers. He was uh, writing endless letters, journalistic sketches, pieces for newspapers, you know, and all this while trying to run a household, deal with a young family. And it's extraordinary. You wonder whenever he slept. It seemed to me that incontrovertibly the biggest emotional impact in the period that you deal with up to the late 1830s, was the death of his sister-in-law, the 17-year-old Mary Hogarth. Can you tell me a bit about that impact and, and why you think it was, it was so great? Mary Hogarth was 17 when she died. In some ways, she had become the centre of the house at Doughty Street, which Dickens and his wife lived in. And even if she hadn't been the centre, retrospectively, Dickens recreated her in his imagination as the centre of the home. She was the heartbeat, she was the pivot between husband and wife. And after husband and wife stopped getting on a few years later, he invested her with all the the romance and sense of regret which he now saw in his marriage. She was the ideal woman. And she was ideal not despite being dead, she was ideal precisely because she was dead. And therefore she could become the angel in the house who would never grow up into a clumsy and uh, slightly chunky uh, woman, which, which his wife became in his eyes. She died in his arms and he composed the tombstone epitaph for her himself, in which he talks about 
her being young and beautiful and good. He never forgot that phrase, and he comes back to it in novel after novel after novel. And he does it for two reasons, I think. One is simply because he wanted to replay her life and her death in a way which he could control, because, of course, her death he hadn't been able to control. The other reason he did it was so that he could nudge the events in a different direction, so that on the page he could recreate life not as it had been, but as it should have been. He could give Mary Hogarth a series of unhappy endings or a series of happy endings. So he became a kind of god. And the novel becomes the means of exploring those different possibilities. That's that's exactly right. The novel, because it is situated in this strange grey land between the real world, which we recognise, which involves certain uh, trade names and uh, place names and streets around London uh, and bits of fashion and so on. So it, it's caught between that and a world of fantasy in which things that did not happen or would not happen run alongside. That's a very, very rich theme which the novel has always mined. Dickens invests an extraordinary personal effort into situating himself on that cusp, in that scene between the real and the imaginary. And often it's deeply personal for him. So the way in which he rewrites Mary Hogarth's death, in some ways, is his attempt to find a middle ground between recognising that the past is unavoidable because it's happened, and the past is always avoidable because you, you can always rewrite it in a different way. To what degree do you think he was self-conscious about the imprints of his past, not just the death of, of Mary, but various of the things um, that we've talked about this afternoon finding their way into the fiction? Do you think it was unself-conscious? It's very hard to say. One of the ways of thinking about it is as a series of knowing private jokes. Um, there's a very famous story that his daughter tells about watching him go to the mirror and uh, making all sorts of funny faces as he tries to get himself into the character of his characters before he then goes and scribbles down what the characters would say. Now that suggests either a degree of artfulness in which he is working himself up like an actor before going on stage, or absolute artlessness in which he is utterly unselfconscious about anybody watching him or thinking what he's doing is strange. When it comes to the versions of himself and his family and his friends that he inserts into, into the novels, I think he would have been surprised at how often it happens. He would have been surprised at the kinds of pattern that emerges cumulatively, but he might have recognised little shreds and fragments of himself. And it's very hard to see how he could not write about somebody called Charles uh, or Dick, which was one of his nicknames for himself, and not think of it in the first person. Although often there are these false trails which he lays. So, for instance, when uh, John Forster points out that the initials of David Copperfield, DC, are his own in reverse, CD, as if David Copperfield was like Dickens looking into a mirror and seeing himself 
staring back. Dickens professed himself to be absolutely astonished. And that is itself astonishing, given that he introduces large fragments of his autobiography into the novel. So he must have been aware that this was in some ways an autobiographical novel. Robert, finally, maybe I can ask you, I think your book makes us see Dickens' life differently and and reappraise it. Do you also want us to read his novels differently as a result of, of taking this different view of him? In terms of his life, what I hope the book does is show how Dickens was, as a young man, uh, ambitious and restless, driven and uncertain, and also very funny, very different to the Dickens that we usually think of with the lined face and the grizzled hair, utterly unsmiling in all those photographs. The friends who describe him describe his face being full of life, full of animation and smiling. Now, of course, people tend not to smile in Victorian photographs even later in the period, which means we have an utterly wrong impression of this man as being a gloomy, brooding sage, whereas in fact often he was light on his feet and also you know, light in his heart. What I hope people take away from the biography when they read the novels is just how unexpected they are in how they move from chapter to chapter and indeed from sentence to sentence. I hope that they'll put themselves in Dickens's shoes and imagine themselves holding the pen, forming each word and wondering where to go next. What should the next word be? And instead of thinking of it as absolutely inevitable as a printed book which is finished, to think of the act of writing as far more provisional and uncertain, which of course is how he treated his life. Robert Douglas Fairhurst. Becoming Dickens is available from Harvard University Press. You can find out more about it on their website. And do visit thehedgehogandthefox.com for news of forthcoming and archive interviews in this series. Until next time, thank you very much for listening and goodbye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.